Good morning. Um, I, I, I do still work here. Thank you. Thanks for, um, if you've just started coming in the last two weeks, you're like, who is this guy? Uh, Corey. Uh, so that was the first time that I can remember that I've taken two week off, uh, two weekends off it, in, uh, in a row like that. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was different. Um, two quick stories because, I don't know, I missed you. Uh, <laughs> to tell you. So we were up in, um, we, we flew into Boston and we were up in Maine. We, we drove all around Maine for about nine days, stayed all kinds of different places. When one is in Maine, uh, you have to stop by Stephen King's house, which we did. And uh, you may think less of me, but I don't care. Um, and so I... I <laughs> Not only did we stop by Stephen King's house, which is, it's just kind of on a normal street in Bangor, Maine. Um, I was wearing a shirt my wife bought me for Christmas a couple of years ago uh, from my favorite book of his, Insomnia, and, and he's wearing the shirt that I was wearing in, on the back cover of the book. And, uh, and so we pull up to his house. <laughs> it's a very anticlimactic story. I'm sorry, I just wanna to talk to you for a minute. Uh, uh, we pull up to his house and there's no one else up there and, and there's two cars in the driveway, garage doors open. I'm assuming Stephen King is home. And so um, I'm just kind of hanging out on the street, taking pictures of his house and taking pictures of me in front of his house. And I don't know if anyone else has ever done this when you're in front of a celebrity's house, but you have this fantasy of the celebrity looking out and being like, oh, you know, I know that shirt and he should come in and have a cup of coffee with me. That, that didn't happen. And... Um, not only that, it hit me. I'm kind of acting like uh, Kathy Bates' character in Misery <laughs> out here in front of the house. So I should probably leave um, before the cops get called. So uh, the, house for, for the house next door to his is for sale, actually. And I was like, <laughs> do we have enough equity in our home in Murfreesboro to, to live next door to Stephen King? No, uh, that's, that's one really not good story. So the second one is... Uh, on our, on our way out, we stayed one night in Boston. That's where my wife's uh, mother's family is originally from. And, and um, you know, showed our kids Boston. And we're sitting in the hotel room the night before we left. And they have the, the old school, like, you know, phones that no one uses anymore. And um, landline. So I, I think it's funny. It's not, but I think it is. To prank call my kids and my wife from the phone. And so I prank call all of them in succession. And then we go to bed and I think I'm funny. And then the next morning, my wife's chuckling and she goes, hey, they charged you $6 a phone call for that. <laughs> Not as funny as I thought. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it was money, money burned. Um, okay, so if you weren't here last weekend uh, or if you were here last weekend and, and got to see Josh speak, if you've never heard Josh speak, he hasn't been here in a couple of years, he is a, a very gifted speaker. Um, and he did a great job. I listened to his lesson last week. He pastors our church out in Cannon County. And um, he had kind of an interesting task. Uh, last week when we were in chapter 18, um, this kind of introduces not just the climax of the gospel of John, it's, it's, it's kind of the climax of the Bible. I mean, we, we are getting into the part of the Bible that is what the whole Bible is centered around, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And chapter 18 is interesting. If you were reading this for the first time ever, um, you get through the Gospel of John, you get to chapter 18 where Jesus is unlawfully arrested. He is mocked and ridiculed by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the, the religious council. He is 
then brought to the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, which we'll talk about a lot today, a very interesting individual. Um, and, and, then, and then Jesus is, is paraded out in front of the people and Pontius Pilate, the governor, says to the Jewish people, he says to them, um, every year we release a prisoner. Do you want Barabbas, who if you weren't here last week, is a, a, he was a political extremist, a revolutionary, a political extremist. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And the people say, give us Barabbas. Can you imagine religious people that would choose a political extremist over, over their savior? Anyways, so, so he, he, he brings them out. And, and what we see in chapter 18 is it looks like Jesus has lost control, but he hasn't. And this is what Josh really focused on is that Jesus is always in control. He is, he is the sovereign creator God. He is the sovereign savior. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. And of course, as the story unfolds, we learn that. As we get into chapter 19 that we'll go over today, it, it, guys, it's a heavy chapter. And, and the reason why I wanted to kind of joke around and talk with you at the beginning is, is I mean, we're gonna get really, really serious. Uh, chapter 19 is about the crucifixion of Jesus and, and it's heavy and it's weighty and it's sad, and it's also beautiful, oddly, and, 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 and it's, it's intriguing, and it's the most important thing that has ever happened, and, and I think we forget the weight of, of this. And, and, and so I want us to, to live in that weight a little bit this morning. Also, you have, uh, you have some homework. So if you've never read uh, the story of the crucifixion, you shouldn't just read it in one of the four gospels. You should read it in all four gospels. The reason why is they all kind of focus on slightly different aspects of the gospel, uh, of the crucifixion. And John's is probably um, the most unique. It's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. It, it focuses more not on the nitty gritty details of the crucifixion. John focuses on who's on the cross. Who, what is the identity of this person on the cross? And why is he on the cross? That's what John is kind of focusing in on, okay? And that's where we're gonna hang out a little bit today. So you should have got a notes handout. Um, everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, everything is uh, on the app on sermon notes. We're in the fourth book of the New Testament. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's heavy, it's deep. It's, 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 uh, it's very impactful. And, and we'll get into it, and I, I think it'll, it'll, it'll touch your heart. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into chapter 19. Father God, we love you. <sighs> Lord, I, I, I truly love everyone in this room, God, and, and if I, as a broken, flawed human, can love people, um, Lord, you love us in a way that is um, out of our comprehension. Father, my prayer today is that, that you bless this church, but, but in the manner of, I hope that all of us in this room can, can, can experience your love a little bit more, that we can understand it a little bit more, that we can live in it a little bit more. God, we don't just pray for our church, we pray for, uh, for, for all the churches in our community, God, for all the people in our community that they experience your love. We pray, God, that as we study your word, that you're honored and that um, we are blessed for it, God. And we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll go back and, and we'll talk about it, okay? Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him saying, hail, 
king of the Jews. And they slapped his face. Pilate went outside and said to them, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, here is the man. Then the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, and they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. Pause with me real quick. Let me give you a quick Roman history lesson. Uh, Tiberius was the Caesar during the time of Jesus Christ's life, uh, his birth and his crucifixion, Uh, Tiberius. Tiberius was the son of Augustus. Augustus was the first Roman emperor who was ever deified. What that means is Caesar Augustus was the first one that they said, that's God. That would make Tiberius, his son, the son of God. Do you find it ironic that the self-proclaimed son of God was the Caesar when the real son of God was about to be crucified? He went back to the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one that handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Okay, so in in Roman punishment, humiliation was a big part of Roman punishment. It wasn't just about uh, punishing person for a crime. It was humiliating them to the point to where they would hopefully never do it again. So after a severe beating, Jesus was crowned with thorns, the very famous crown of thorns, wrapped in a purple robe, making fun of his claim of royalty, and he was repeatedly slapped. Again, this was not to inflict pain. If you wanted to inflict more pain, you would punch. They slapped because it was more disrespectful. So this was mocking him. What we see is this. Listen, when people are in opposition to God, people become brutal. They become condescending, they become cynical, they humiliate and they are cruel. These have always been hallmarks of sin. Is it any wonder that right now in the United States that we are fascinated with violence? That we are a more aggressive society than we ever have, that we get a kick out of watching YouTube videos about people getting sucker punched in subways or attacked on the streets or women fighting in the neighborhoods? Is it any wonder that the further we get away from God, the more brutal we become? the more more condescending we become. Because if we don't value the creator, how can we possibly value the creation? 
right? It's logical. And so Pilate never intended to kill Jesus. Now, as we talk about the crucifixion, man, Pilate is an absolutely fascinating character. Ended up committing suicide about six years after what is written right here. Very fascinating character. Pilate never had the desire to kill Jesus. There were two different levels of punishment. This is the Italian names for those. They're very hard to say. I've listened to them about 60 times on Google and still my tongue will not allow me to say them properly. But there are two different levels of punishment that, that the Italians, that the Romans would inflict on people. Jesus more than likely went through both of these. This is why he was unable to carry the cross, according to the Gospel of Luke, all the way to where he was. He started off, but he couldn't make it all the way. An African Jew named Simon helped him carry the cross uh, to the top of, of the hill where he was crucified. So again, the mindset of Pilate is very, very interesting in all this. So Pilate has him beaten, brings him out and presents him to, to the Jewish mob, the people, which was very common. You would typically beat and humiliate and then present the prisoner. And listen, people in their right minds would see that people had been beaten and punished and they would go, okay, he's had enough. Let's let him go. So this is Pilate's thought. He has been beaten severely. He's wrapped up in a purple robe. He has a crown of thorns. He's bloody. His skin is, is absolutely destroyed. Is this not enough? And what do they say when they see him? Kill him. Crucify him. So here's the thing. Not only do we learn that sin is brutal and cruel, sin is also has an insatiable appetite. What that means is this. Sin doesn't just care that you get beat up a little bit. Sin wants you ultimately destroyed. That's what sin wants. That's what evil wants. And sin takes us to places where even religious people can act unfathomably dark. This is what sin does. So after the Jewish leaders, they say, well, because Pilate says, you crucify him. And they say, well, we can't do that. We have laws that, that, that say we can't do it exactly like that. But if one has committed blasphemy, they are to die. They would have been killed by stoning. And so, so Pilate brings Jesus back in. And he's like, man, who are you? What is going on? Tell me, do you know that I have the authority for you to either live or die? And Jesus says, the only authority you have has been given to you from above. That's a very Jewish way of saying, God gave you that authority. And, and, and Pilate has no answer for that. In an attempt to strike fear in Jesus, the one that ends up leaving the conversation terrified is Pilate. And what was Pilate really afraid of? This is a very interesting thing. Historians will tell you Pilate was afraid of Tiberius. And that's probably true to an extent. Tiberius was a tyrant. Tiberius was the most powerful man on planet earth. And if someone let Tiberius down, they were more than likely gonna be punished for it, right? He even had his first wife exiled and never saw her again. So, so Tiberius was, was a monster. So he could have been afraid of that. He could have been afraid of the Jewish mob, right? That probably scared him a little bit. But, but here's, what, here's what intrigues me. There is something about this dynamic between Pilate and Jesus. You ever been 99% sure of something, but there's that 1% that bothers you? Pilate was probably 99% sure that that was not God in the flesh standing in front of him, but there was that 1%. There was that little bit of doubt. Who is this guy? And he, was, he did everything he could to get Jesus off the hook. 
But even though Pilate did everything he could to get Jesus out of this situation and himself out of this situation, the, the, the pressure of society was too much. Listen, I hope you guys in this room hear me. We can say that we are dedicated. We can say that we are followers. We can say that we believe in the truth. But, but, but what is really happening in society right now is, and, and I see on some of your Facebooks, and I see what you guys talk about and what you post, we're all about the principles of Jesus until society pushes us to affirm things that are not biblically sound, and I see a lot of you roll over on it. Am I being um, is, is ambiguously clear as I can be this morning? There are a lot of things that we roll over because we're like, oh, I might be exiled. I might be persecuted in some way. And we hand over and we relent on things that we feel in our heart is right. And what we know as a Christian are right. And we compromise and we cave because the world looks at us and says, any opposition to Caesar, we can call Caesar whatever we want. We can call it TikTok. We can call it Instagram. We can call it our friend base. We can call it our families. We can call it whatever. But we have a tendency to compromise and cave when that pressure is put on us. And look at this. Not only is sin brutal and cruel, not only does sin have an insatiable appetite, sin turns us crazy. The religious leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. Really? Go throughout, we're about to do 1 Samuel and we're gonna see what it's like to follow an earthly king versus the king of kings. We're about to get into that book here in a couple of months. And so the Jewish people say, we have no king except for Caesar. What we see in ancient Rome, if you've never studied ancient Rome, it's fascinating. I've read quite a few books on ancient Rome. Ancient Rome is a lot like modern day America. Um, we're kind of an archetype. We're, 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 we're kind of a, um, a revised Rome, if you will. And Rome and American culture right now is, is a pretty good study on, on worldly principles versus godly principles. And in a lot of ways, we look like Rome. If you've never been to Washington, D.C., most of our laws were structured after the Roman Republic. Most of our buildings and our, our nation's capital, our Greek and Roman architecture, our statues, things like that. Even, I don't know if you guys know this, the days of the months that we use and things like that. All these things come from Rome. A lot of these things come from Rome. And even our culture, as far as we are a pluralistic society, what that means is, in the time of the Roman Empire, you could worship anything you wanted as long as culture and the state, they call it the Pax Romana, as long as the Pax Romana was kept intact. Sounds like America, does it not? And so here's the thing, we have to be honest. Where do our allegiances really lie? At the end of it all, what do we really give our heart to? And there is an insanity when we live in sin that not only do we put our hope and faith in something that is inevitably going to fall apart, human constructs and, and, and humans in general, there is an insanity in sin that we will let our anger, we will let our lust, we will let our desires cause us to do things that are crazy. I can't tell you how many beautiful young women I've seen throw their lives away because of some piece of trash boy that they're dating who's addicted to drugs and gets them addicted to drugs. Then they throw a whole, their whole life away on that. That's crazy. I can't tell you how many brilliant young men I've seen throw it all away because they wanna get high or they wanna screw this chick or they wanna do whatever. And it's crazy. 
I can't tell you how many affluential people, people that have a lot of money, who will lie and cheat on their taxes just to save a couple of thousand dollars when they already have millions of dollars in assets. That's crazy. Because that's what sin does. Makes you crazy. Makes you irrational. There is an insanity when we live a life of sin. Okay, let's keep going on. You guys are like, man, I wish he would have taken three weeks off. <laughs> then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He, out, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Let's gamble for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, that was John, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son, referring to John. Then he said to, to the disciple, John, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So like I said earlier, John's focus is a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. Um, there is little about the, uh, about the brutality of the cross, little about that, more about the identity of the one on the cross. So the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they leave out things like um, the dividing of the clothes. They leave out the breaking of, of the, 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 the criminal's legs on the cross. They leave out the gambling for uh, the tunic. They leave that kind of stuff out. The reason why John put that in his gospel, listen, John's trying to build a case. So imagine if I told you, um, I, I have a doctorate in astrophysics. I'm an astrophysicist. Well, there has to be proof of that. I would show you my undergrad and my graduate degree and my PhD or my, my you, know, you would show these things. You would show maybe literature you had written or you would do equations that only an astrophysicist to do. You would, you would build the case of your identity. That's what John is doing with Jesus. So someone would read this and they would say, okay, we know the Old Testament prophecies and John is showing us all the different things that Jesus fulfilled. This must be the Savior. This must be the Messiah. So Jesus walked the longest road possible to where he was going to be crucified. They did that on purpose. Uh, they call that the Via Della Rosa. So if you ever go to, to, to uh, Jerusalem, you can walk the Via Della Rosa. Jesus walked with what's called a quaternion. That's, that's a fancy uh, Italian phrase for he had four guards with him or four uh, soldiers. 
These four soldiers would, would walk this path. Jesus more than likely had a 100 pound cross beam that he was carrying. That's hard to carry for, for a strong man, even if, it's, if you haven't been severely beaten. There would have been a soldier walking in front of Jesus with a sign that had his crime written on it. They would have walked to where they were going. There would have been what's called a patibulum, which would have been the other part of the cross. He was carrying this part. Then you had this other part. They would lay him down on the patibulum. They would strap that together, nail that together, and then they would nail him to the cross. They would probably go through his wrists and they would go through his feet. And one of the reasons they did that, besides the obvious pain and, and suffering, is if they had to catch a breath. So, so the point of the cross was not to die a quick death, it was to die a slow death, a slow, painful death. Your heart would either give out, you'd have heart failure, or you would die of suffocation, asphyxiation. And so what you'd have to do is, is they would have to push themselves up. So imagine if, if, your, if your skin was shredded from your back and you'd have to push yourself up every time to catch a breath on the cross and then your back would slide back down that rugged piece of wood every single time you had to breathe. Not only was it physically painful, Jesus was intentionally placed between two criminals. And this was another way to degrade him, to condescend him, to, to, to humiliate him. And Pilate made a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders saw this and they said, no, 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 get rid of that and say, he thought he was King of the Jews. I am the King of the Jews is what he said. And Pilate's response to me is intriguing. He says, I wrote what I wrote. Now, I don't know if he was just sick of the Jews at this point, or again, if there was a little bit more going on in his mind. But Pilate's refusal is interesting. And the reason why I think John recorded it is it is extremely ironic. Listen, it is extremely ironic that whether anyone believed what that sign said, it was true. He was the king. He was the king of the Jews. He was the king of all humanity. And there is irony in that placard. Speaking of irony, Jesus Christ and the cross are the highest level of irony. What we are presented with, what we are presented with here in the gospel of John is you have the king and the creator of the universe, the king and creator of the universe who willingly lowered himself down to be nailed to his creation by his creation for his creation. This is the ultimate irony. This is the ultimate sign of humility. This is the ultimate, this is the ultimate contradiction, contrast. It runs completely perpendicular to the ways of the world. The world tells us all the time, put yourself first. And Jesus not only said it, he lived it and died it. That if you wanna be first, you have to choose to be last. That, that, that we are to make ourselves secondary. And so what we learn, not only from his teachings and his principles, but through his life and through his death and his resurrection, is that the teachings and the ways of God do not run in lockstep with the teachings of the world. In fact, they are exactly the opposite. This is why Jesus even said, if you love the world, you hate me. How often do you and I try to how often do we try to make the two parallel and they cannot be? There is a collision course. 
And the reason why they're so opposite and so different is the ways of the world lead you to destruction. If you pursue you, you're going to destroy you. That's why you pursue the creator of you. And then we start to understand ourselves even better. And listen, this is why the cross is the most recognizable symbol that has ever existed. Doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter if you're male or female, doesn't matter what corner of the world you're from, everyone knows what the cross is. Many revere it and respect it and love it. Many people hate it. Here in America, we just kind of make it a casual piece of art, an accessory to an outfit, an accessory to an accent wall. Now listen, you don't have to hide your necklace or go take down your Hobby Lobby cross when you get home. That's not what I mean by that. That's okay to have those things. Listen, if, if, if we remember that the real cross was not diamond studded, the real cross was not shiny gold, it wasn't platinum. The real cross was bloody and it was brutal and it was ugly and it was messy and it was costly. And it's okay to wear that necklace. It's okay to have that. We have a crucifix hanging in, in, in our house. It's, it's okay. It's okay to have those things as long as we never forget the magnitude of what that symbol is. As long as we never forget. So, so, so the cross is recognizable. People love it. People hate it. People take it for granted. The cross, the cross and, and Jesus also divide our understanding of time. We have BC and AD, before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We've tried to change that because that's now offensive. So we call it BCE and BC, which means before common era and the common era. I'm sorry, so, so CE. But, 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 but that even means the same thing. The common era is the Christian era. Any way you slice it, Jesus divides any way you present him, he forces us to choose. There is no casual approach to the cross. There is no casual approach to Christ. Even Christ said, you're either with me or you're not. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I came to divide families. I came to split parents from their children. It's not that Jesus loves division. It's that Jesus is the dividing line between what is right and what is wrong. And there is no place in the middle. It is either his way or, or it doesn't work. And this is what Jesus came to do. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, over 20 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled just in the 24 hours that Jesus was crucified. The soldiers gambling for his clothes fulfilled Psalm 22. And as the soldiers gambled, Jesus looked out and only one of his disciples was left from the 12. There were several women that loved him very much, including his mother, and he looked at his mom and he said, mom, look at John, that's your son. Then he said, John, look at my mother, that's your mother. And it said, he took her into her home. And isn't it beautiful that on Jesus's uh, uh, last moments on earth, he fulfilled one of the 10 commandments to honor his mother, to respect his mother, Exodus chapter 20. Interesting. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine vinegar was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine with a hyssop or hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a special day 
Probably a hint of sarcasm in, in John's tone there. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this, John's referring to himself, has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one that they have pierced. So Jesus came to accomplish a mission. And at this point, he's on the cross. He has done everything that God the Father wanted him to do. All of the prophecies were fulfilled. His mission was finished. Now his death was imminent. He had nothing else to do except die. Jesus, while he was up there, said, I'm thirsty. And they gave him vinegar, sour wine. Now, this is not to be confused with Mark 15, where in Mark 15, he denied a drink that they put on a sponge. That was referring to a medicinal drink that they would give people on the cross uh, to take away pain and to help them live a little bit longer. Jesus had no desire to live a little bit longer. He had fulfilled everything he had done now it was his time to die. This can be a reference to Psalm 69. This can be a reference to Jesus quenching our spiritual thirst. That's why this, this I'm thirsty was mentioned by John. And after all of this is done, Jesus says it's finished. This phrase has, has many layers. It's finished means that his time on earth is finished. It's finished means that the suffering that he went through is finished. It also means that the work that needed to be done to open up the door for every single human who wanted to be saved and reconciled to God, that work was also finished. So it is finished is a cry of relief. Oh, it's finished. It's also a cry of victory. It's finished. It's a... It's about the finished work of Jesus to save us. It's about that we can't do it on our own, but he did it for us. It's about the hope and peace that we have in this life, knowing that there is an afterlife with him. Knowing that Jesus said, in my father's home are many rooms. There's plenty of room for you. Anyone who will come, the work has already been done. The check has already been paid for. You just have to pick it up. It is finished. It's done. Jesus has conquered. Now look at this, look how fascinating this is. So the religious people are back here, right? The, the Jewish council, the priests. And they're sitting here and they're like, oh, this will not do. It's almost the Sabbath day and we have these, these men dying on these crosses. We don't want that to defile our religious ceremony. So they asked the Roman soldiers, can you break all their legs so they can die quickly and we can get rid of them? So they go and they break the, the, the legs of the first one. They go and break the legs of the second one. They go to break the legs of Jesus but he's already passed away. Do you guys not find it disgusting and horrible and, and quite ironic that there are people who are willing to have others thrown out, cast out, even killed in order to protect their religious ceremonies? It is nuts. It's like, it's like if there's a, a group of people 
and they dress to the nines one day a week and they put on this persona and this face and they make it such a culture to where anyone on the outside world walks in and they instantly feel ostracized. We call it things like our Sunday best, which is not a Christian thing, it's not a biblical thing, it's a strictly American thing. But we create cultures like that to where outsiders come in and they go, oh, I don't fit in here. But here's the thing, there are a lot of people, it's not any of you, it's probably why you're here and listen to, to this guy, right? There are a lot of you, though, who have come to this place because you're sick of a culture that values religious practice more than they value people. Now, now hold on. The whole point of religion is to honor God and to bless people. That's the whole point, right? Jesus even said, the Bible even says, proper religion, James actually said, the brother of you, proper religion is, is to, 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 to help the widows and the orphans. That's real religion. Real religion is about the blessing of others. It's not about creating a country club. It's not your preferences. Well, I like my music this way. I don't care anymore. If you don't like our music here, go someplace that fits that. This is supposed to be an environment. If you don't like how I dress, if you don't like the people around you, whatever, that, you don't have to be here. But the point is, is that we create a conducive environment to where anyone, regardless of how rich, poor, broken, you know, educated, whatever, that they can come in and they can hopefully experience a relationship with God, if we start thinking more about our religious practice than we do about people, we have missed it. And we're acting a lot like the Pharisees. So Jesus had already died and there was no need to break his legs. Now this is fascinating. This not only fulfilled prophecy, this also aligned with the practice of how you killed a sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, when you sacrificed a lamb for the forgiveness of your sins, you could not break any of the bones in the sacrificial lamb. There was no bones broken in Jesus as badly as he was beaten. And that tells us that the ultimate sacrifice was hanging on the cross. No more blood had to be shed. No more lives had to be lost. No more had to be given. He just paid it all. And that's why he came, to be the payment for our sins, to be the atoning blood for anyone who would accept the gift. No more blood had to be shed now. The ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrificial lamb had just given his life. So to make sure that he was dead, it says that a, 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 a soldier pierced his side. More than likely, this wasn't a jabbing. More than likely, this was, this was a cut. They cut into his side and blood and water came out. This also fulfilled prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12. And the reason why John mentions this is, is if you go back to the very beginning of the gospel of John, if you weren't here when we started it, the very beginning, John chapter one, the word became flesh. God became flesh. The reason why John recorded the blood and water coming out was probably not anything more than just to show that God became flesh. And I'm not trying to, my wife always gets on to me. She says, you're kind of a joy kill. You bust everyone's bubble. Um, um, you've probably heard really fancy, you know, pastors talk about the blood and the water means this and this and this and this and this. Medically speaking, it just means that someone has died. And so that means that, that John was just saying, and this is a big deal, that that was God that became flesh and that flesh died. That flesh died for us. That was what the blood and water being mentioned means. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus's body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, 
who had previously come to him at night, you guys probably remember him, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. They took Jesus's body, wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. So this introduces us to a character named Joseph of Arimathea and I find him intriguing. Joseph was rich, he was influential, he was educated. He followed Jesus in secrecy in fear of the Jewish leaders. Now we can read that and we can get a little judgmental. Oh, well, why wasn't he just out in the open about it? He's about to be. He was probably doing it in secrecy for the same reason tens of millions of Chinese Christians are doing it in secrecy right now as we speak. They're worried about their kids being hurt or their wife being hurt or their home being burnt down. They're not compromising their integrity of the word. They're just trying to keep people safe. So this is probably why Joseph of Arimathea was also doing it in secrecy. He was rich, he was powerful, he was educated. He obviously had a voice with Pilate. He asked if he could take Jesus's body and they took it and they buried it in a tomb that more than likely Joseph owned. Why is this important? It's important, and again, I'm not saying any of you, we're just talking open this morning. We have a tendency in Christianity to love the poor and the downtrodden. We say it all the time, man, we love the poor, we love the broken. Do you know why I think we never say things like, man, we love the rich? The reason why is I think the poor and the downtrodden don't threaten us. They don't have anything that we want. We're better than them. We love them, we love them. And sometimes it's a little condescending, isn't it? We never say things like, Jesus loves the rich and beautiful. We don't, we, I wonder why Jesus gives both beauty and wealth to one individual. Why can't he divvy that out a little bit better? But anyways, that was a joke. But very, very seldomly, do you see a shirt that says, man, Jesus loves the powerful and influential. You know why? Because we're threatened by the powerful and influential. They have things that we don't have. And you know what we typically fall to? The sin of envy. So we don't say, when we say Jesus loves everyone, we mean really Jesus loves everyone except for the billionaires. You know what we learned from Joseph of Arimathea? He was rich, he was powerful, he had a lot of influence and God used him because he humbled himself and allowed God to use him. Not only Joseph of Arimathea, another guy that we've seen before, Nicodemus, Again, I assume I'm gonna be friends with everyone that I talk about. That's why I say Nick and Joe up here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Joe. So though John says that Nicodemus and, and, and Joseph of Arimathea followed in secret, the fact that they went and got Jesus's body, Nicodemus walks up with 75 pounds of spices. I think that's pretty clear that they have come out in their following of Jesus. Isn't it odd that the disciples who had nothing to lose took off and these two rich, powerful men who had everything to lose came out. You know what that reminds me of? We use the word privileged a lot in American society. We're really good in the most prosperous free nation that has ever existed to point fingers and go, oh, those privileged people. I hate to break it to you. If you're an American citizen, you're privileged. You're very privileged. You're one of the most privileged people that have ever existed on planet earth. You're very privileged. And so I have to ask ourselves, right? We as the most privileged people who have ever, probably ever walked planet earth, are we willing to give up those privileges 
Are we willing to give up our lifestyles and our incomes and our social status and our freedoms, right? There's some Christians who value their freedoms more than they value the gospel. Are, are we willing to lay those things down for a crucified Christ? Are we? Well, those privileged people, you're the privileged people. I'm the privileged person. And are we willing to lay all that down for a crucified Christ? It's a good question to ask ourselves. So at the end of this chapter, John just lays down the facts. There's no flowery language. There's no deep metaphors. It was the son of God came to be crucified. And he was put into a tomb by people that loved him and people that cared for him. And you can imagine John's hand was probably shaking as he anticipated what he was about to write next. But we'll get to that next week. Listen, let's go back and revisit this. When we compromise our biblical integrity, when we give in to sin, we're talking about the mob, right? At the beginning of this chapter, we see a mob. We have lots of mobs in American culture, do we not? We have lots of mobs. Mobs behind keyboards, mobs who walk around with masks on. We have mobs all over the place in American society. When we give in to the mob, when we give in to culture, when we give in to sin, we start to become irrational people. We start to become cruel people. We start to become brutal people. Listen, I like boxing, right? Boxing, you got about a four inch pad on the end of your knuckle. That's not enough for people. Now we have bare knuckle boxing. We wanna see orbital bones get smashed. We wanna see people potentially die. We go back and we read the Roman accounts of the, of, of, of the theaters and we read the Roman accounts of the Colosseums and we go, man, those people were barbaric. They paid to go see people get hurt. When we move away from God, we become brutal people. This is always indicative of sin. So the question is, do we know how to be close to God? Do we know the commands of Christ? Do we know the principles of Christ? Are we doing them? Or have we caved to the social mob? Have we caved to the ways of the world? Have we caved to societal pressure? I hope we don't. I hope we don't because we will lose ourselves in the process. We also have to acknowledge this. Listen, that you and I cannot fix ourselves. This is the exact opposite of what the world tells you all the time. Man, you're good. Everything's good. You're good. Pursue you. Do you. It's all about you. You know what the Bible says? There is nothing good in you apart from God. Nothing. Listen, and, and you shouldn't be offended by that. People are, people are offended by that. God got up there and told me I was no good. You're right. I did. There's no good in you apart from Christ. Listen, that's the most liberating thing you will ever hear. The most liberating thing you can ever hear is that there's nothing you can do to fix yourself, but you can accept the free gift of what God has already done to fix you. By accepting his work, we have to accept who he is. We accept who Jesus is by accepting his teachings and principles. And we are saved by his work. There is nothing you can do to earn heaven. Absolutely nothing. Now listen, that is not an excuse for you to go live however you want to live. That is not an excuse for you to go out and do whatever you want to do. Paul addressed that. 
Should we sin more because grace abounds? No, the Bible says. It is not an excuse to live however we wanna live. It is also not an excuse for us to live in spiritual apathy. Paul also addresses that, Ephesians 2, right? That's the one everyone goes to. Corey, there's nothing we can do. Haven't you read Ephesians 2? 8 and 9, haven't you read those two verses, right? That we are saved by grace through faith and there's nothing we can do because we would become arrogant. And I say, have you read the next two verses? Because it says you have been created by God for good works. That's the thing about reading the Bible in context. We have to read the whole thing. You are not saved by your works, but listen, not only were you saved to work, you were created to work. You were created to do the work of growing your relationship with God. You were created to do the work of blessing the people around you. That's why you are created. We are not saved by our work, but we are saved by his work to work. That's why we were saved. We must also, if we're to be saved, we must deny ourselves. This is what I was talking about. Here's this collision. The world says, man, it's all about you, right? It's all about you. Do it your way. It's all about you. Doesn't matter if you mutilate your body. Doesn't matter if you go into millions of dollars in debt. Man, you pursue happiness because that's what it's all about. Do you. Jesus says, don't do you, right? Fixate on me. That if you will deny yourself, the only way to find yourself, Jesus says, is to lose yourself. The only way to understand who you are as the creation is you must make the creator your top priority. So Jesus says, if one's to be saved, this is in Matthew 16, first you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself, which means put God's desires above our desires. We must pick up our cross, which means Jesus's mission is now our mission. Even if I end up on a cross, like Peter did, even if I end up on a cross and we are to follow him, which means we not only learn the teachings of Jesus, we do the teachings of Jesus. And you know what we have to ask ourselves, honestly, are we willing to do this? If you never get to pursue your dreams, you never get to travel the world, you never get to live in exotic places, you don't get to marry that trophy wife, Maybe God will call you to be single until you die. Maybe you have a proclivity to have a sexual desire for things that God doesn't condone and you may have to live in, in celibacy for the rest of your life. Will we give up our finances? Will we give up what we want? Will we deny ourselves in the face of a culture that says do everything to indulge yourself? Will we deny ourselves? Will we pick up a cross? Will we potentially die and suffer for the ways of God? And will we apply all the teachings of Jesus? If we are being honest right now with ourselves, will we do it? Will we do it? Would we put it all on the line, all on the line? Well, I can't imagine that God would not want me to be happy. Find me in this book where God says, I want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. And with that comes contentment and peace and yes, joy. But holiness is the first objective, not happiness, holiness. And from that comes a deep contentment and peace because we know who we are in the Lord. Amen. And so who is this one that died for us? What is behind this cross? What is behind this book? What is behind the largest religion that has ever existed? The identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the way. 
It's not one of many paths. It's not one spoke that go to the same center. It's the only road. He is the way. He is the truth. There's not multiple truths. There's not your truth and my truth. There's not relative truth and subjective truth. Those things don't exist. There's just truth. And that's Jesus. There is not multiple ways to live. There are not multiple pathways to peace and contentment and fulfillment. There's only one way to life. That is Jesus. He is life. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is God that became flesh. He is the creator God that came down and spoke in a way that you and I could understand. He's the creator God that came and looked his people in the eye. And he said, the kingdom of God is like this. He spoke in such simple ways. The kingdom of God is like a man that found a treasure in a field. That he would speak about the kingdom, that he would look at humanity's face and say, this is how I want you to live. These are the clear expectations. And if you will just follow me, there's a place for you in eternity. There is no path to fulfillment. There is no path to real love. I'm not talking about the bastardized, twisted uh, uh, version of love that the world tries to sell you. I'm talking about real love. There's no path to real love apart from him because God is love and Jesus is God. There's no path to peace. There's no path to any of these things. There's no path to eternal life. There's only one way, and that's through Christ, and that is, that is, made, that, that is made possible through the cross that he hung on. Amen. That is it. Who is Christ? He is the creator, the creator God. Man, I hope you guys are listening to me this morning. We take for granted, I do too, guys. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I do it too. We take for granted that we are invited into a relationship with the same God that spoke the universe into existence. He is the creator. And we are Jesus's most prized creation. If you ever get bored or if you're just a nerd like me and you get on Disney Plus and and look up the National Geographic documentaries and see these documentaries of all these, these millions of different species of mammals and reptiles and amphibians and insects and all these different geographical and geological uh, abnormalities in the, in the world. And, and when you even think about the atmosphere of the earth and you go beyond that atmosphere into space and deep space and you, and you think about the complexity and the, and the enormity of creation, of everything God ever spoke into existence and creation, you are the only thing that looks like him. You are the only thing that resembles, that carries the image of God. You're it. You're the only thing that he breathed his breath into. Besides the angels that already existed, you're the only thing that's eternal. You will exist forever. And sin had separated us. But Jesus, God in flesh, the word made flesh, came. Died on a cross, as Paul said, while we were still sinners. And he reconciled us, if we want to be. He forgave us, if we want to be. That we can be restored and saved and reconciled with our creator. What was the mission of Jesus on the cross? Listen, you were the mission. What's the point? You're the point. God doesn't need you. 
God doesn't need me, but he wants me. He wants you. Loved. He finds, he finds you beautiful. He finds you to be the pinnacle of his creation. I don't know who needs to hear it this morning. Maybe no one in this room. Maybe it's just me. But sometimes I, I think we say it so, so casually that we forget that Jesus loves me. When I was an addict, Jesus died on the cross for me. When we were sexually deviant, Jesus knew, and he died on the cross for us. When we were arrogant, when we were lying on our taxes and stealing and cheating and manipulating, Jesus saw it and he loved us and he died anyways in the hopes that we would recognize that and give our life to him. And we could be with him forever. Let me ask you this. How much differently would you live if you truly understood that? How much differently would you and I live if we truly understood our value in Christ? How much differently would you treat your wife or your husband if you understood that she was also a child made in the image of God and loved by God immensely? How much differently would we raise our children? How much differently would we treat the neighbor that we don't really get along with? How much differently would we look at the Muslim or the Buddhist or the radical trans male or the gay couple or the Republican or the Democrat? I'm not condoning what all these people do, but I'm saying if I can get it in my head that everyone that I look at is made in the image of God, I treat them a little bit differently because I understand that they have an immense value. And even though they may be lost, that God intends for them to be found. And that maybe I'm a part in that. Listen, God loves you. And God loves the person next to you. And God loves your children. And God loves those lost family members. And God loves the radical zealot and God loves the liberal atheist, and God loves the hypocritical Christian Republican. God loves them all, and so should we. Is that easy? No. But the mission of Christ and the mission of the cross is people. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I want to reiterate one more time. I don't, I don't know who needs to hear it, but, but not only do you need to hear that God loves you, we need to learn to live in that. If you're in here and, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you have questions, maybe you're digging, you're looking, you're seeking. I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to, I don't want to beg you, but, but I, I would implore you. Up here on my left, your right, Pastor Jonathan is up here. If you have any questions for Jonathan, just, just come up and ask. What does it hurt, right? We have men and women on both sides of the stage that are here to pray for you if you need prayer for anything in your life. It doesn't matter. And then the last thing is this, and we do this every single weekend, but I, but I hope, 
listen, I hope this morning you guys really take some time to meditate and ponder and think on communion today. And if you don't want to, be respectful of the people that do, please. All around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, the majority of the posts in the middle, there's bread and wine. And that is symbolic of everything we've talked about today. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if we would just believe in him, we will have everlasting life. The communion represents the body and blood of Christ that was shed for you, for me. All of us are welcome to take that today as long as we have asked Jesus to forgive us of our sin. Let me pray for you and then you'll be welcome to help yourself. Father God, we love you. God, it is almost incomprehensible that you would, that, that you would come and die for us. It is almost incomprehensible, Lord, that you would love such, such a, a, a broken people, Lord, such a, 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 we can be so angry and we can be so aggressive and we can be so hypocritical we can be so selfish, God, but you love us. You see something in us that, Lord, we don't even see in, our, in ourselves. I pray, God, that this morning, in some way, all of us in this room would at least get a, a, a glimpse of how much you care about us and how much you love us and value us, and that we would live in that love. God, I pray that you keep everyone in this room safe, Lord. Keep your hand on us, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Please, uh, you're welcome to help yourself. Just take your time.